Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we start today's episode, I'm excited to share a bit of news with you. I've published a guided audio tour of Stockholm through an app called VoiceMap. VoiceMap is an app where you can find audio guides for most cities around the world, but until just a few days ago, they didn't have a guided tour of Stockholm. So I fixed that. If you find yourself in Stockholm and fancy a guided tour through the city, or if you're just sitting at home wishing you could wander through the streets of the Queen of Lake Mälaren while listening to me rambling on in your ears, then I recommend you get the voice map audio tour called Stockholm Walking Tour, the landmarks and legends of Gamla Stan and beyond. If you're quick enough, you can even download the tour for free by following these instructions. First of all, install the voice map mobile app. Just look for it in the Apple App Store or Google Play for voice map audio tours. Two, create a free account. And three, select tour codes from the menu, then select enter codes. Four, enter the code SCANDY22. That's S-C-A-N-D-I-2-2. Then select download now. For more information, you can also go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. While you're there, I recommend you also like and follow the page if you crave more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. And now, let's get back to that show. In the last two episodes, we've seen Denmark sinking deeper and deeper into chaos and decay until the kingdom effectively ceased to exist. When Christopher II died in August 1332, there was almost nothing left of his kingdom. Sweden ruled Scania and various German aristocrats controlled Jutland, Funen and Zealand. What was left was divided between the king and the Danish nobility. Christopher did have two surviving sons, Otto and Valdemar. But the Danish nobility chose to forego both of them when they needed to find a successor to their father. Instead, the crown reverted back to the Duke of Schleswig, who had been King Valdemar III for a few years back when Christopher II had been in exile. Now Valdemar III was king again, but, just like last time, the real power behind the throne was the German Count Gerhard. Christopher's youngest son, also called Valdemar, was just a young child when his father died, and so he couldn't sit on the throne, let alone fight for it. But Otto, also known as the Duke of Lolland and Estonia, was older, and in 1332, when he was in his 20s, he started a rebellion to win the crown that was rightfully his. He kept at it for two years, but on October 7, 1334, he was defeated near Viborg in northern Jutland by an army commanded by Count Gerhard. Otto was thrown into prison in Holstein and the German nobles took control over Denmark, ruling it directly like a military dictatorship, dispensing with the fiction of a Danish king officially running the show. Things looked dark for Denmark. But a new day would soon break, in the shape of the reign of a new king, a more competent king, focused on clawing back what, in his mind, was rightfully his. But with that competence and focus, came a ruthless streak, a willingness to literally kill to get what he wanted. Episode 48, A New Dawn.
And that new king, who, in the eyes of Danish patriots ever since, saved the country, was none other than Valdemar, King Christopher II's youngest son. It's true that when his father died, and he and his older brother Otto were pushed aside by the Duke of Schleswig, or, let's face it, the German nobles running the show, Prince Valdemar was too young to do anything about it. Instead of staying and fighting a fight that was doomed from the start, the young prince was whisked out of Denmark and brought to a safe and comfortable exile far away in Bavaria, where he grew up at the court of Holy Roman Emperor Louis IV. That doesn't mean, however, that Valdemar had forgotten about Denmark or who his father had been. Far from it. Valdemar remembered, but unlike his older brother Otto, he wasn't going to rush in with some half-baked plan to regain the country just to be defeated and locked up. No, Valdemar was biding his time, observing, learning and planning for his return. And the people back home hadn't forgotten about Valdemar either. After Otto's failed attempt at wresting back the crown, Valdemar was now the one remaining hope to re-establish the old dynasty to the Danish throne. And so he became the poster boy and rallying point for various rebelliously inclined Danish nobles who were chafing under the military rule of the German aristocrats. Danish nobles who most likely thought they'd be able to control a young and no doubt grateful Valdemar if they helped him to win his father's crown. One of these rebelliously inclined Danes was called Niels Ebbesen, and he hailed from the Jutland gentry. In the spring of 1340, Gerhard, the leading man among the German aristos who were in charge of Denmark, showed up to collect taxes from the locals in Jutland. At this time, Gerhard was just as fed up with Denmark and the Danes as they were with him, and there were even signs that Gerhard was actually planning on leaving the country after he had extorted one last round of taxes from the locals. On April 1st, 1340, Niels Ebbesen, his brothers and a few dozen other men snuck into Randers, the town where Gerhard was staying the night. They waited until everyone had fallen asleep and then snuck into the house where the hated German was sleeping. They found him sound asleep in his bed, woke him up and cut his head off over the end of the bed. Presumably, the startled Gerhard made as much noise as he could as the Danes struggled to get him into the position they had chosen for his assassination. But Niels Ebbesen and his co-conspirators didn't mind. In fact, they wanted people to know what was happening. They even beat a drum and announced loudly that Gerhard had been executed, trying to give the murder a veneer of legality. They didn't convince the dead Gerhard's soldiers, though. The Germans set out to catch and punish their master's assassins, and, to be fair, it doesn't seem like the Danes had expected any other reaction. You see, in preparation for their killing of Gerhard, they had prepped a bridge just outside town, and as soon as they had all managed to escape across it, they had it pulled down. That way, Niels Ebbesen and his band of rebels managed to get away and continue their fight to oust the Germans. By now, the German nobles were more than ready to call it a day and leave Denmark. With their metaphorical pockets brimming with Danish gold, they struck a deal with Prince Valdemar, whereby he'd become king as long as he would issue a general amnesty to anyone who had been involved in fighting him, his father or his family. And of course, he had to promise to respect the legality of the hold of the German nobles over their Danish lands. Valdemar agreed, and on St. John's Day, June 24th, 1340, he was proclaimed King Valdemar IV of Denmark at the Viborg Thing. 
But that doesn't mean that the Jutland rebellion against the German nobles was at an end. In the fall of that same year, Niels Ebbesen and 2000 Danes laid siege to Skanderborg Castle, trying to capture it from the German force that was holding it. But the Danes were either overconfident or untrained in siege warfare, possibly both, because when 600 German knights showed up to relieve the besieged castle, the Danes were overrun by the simultaneous attack from the back and from the castle when the soldiers holed up inside made a sudden sally. The Danes fell back to a wagon fortress they had constructed on a nearby hill, but the ring of wagons was soon breached by the Germans whose military training and equipment was superior. Niels Ebbesen and all the other Danes trapped on the hill were cut down by the Germans, who didn't leave a single Danish soldier alive. Niels Ebbesen's body was mutilated and stuck on a pike as a warning to anyone else planning to chop off the head of some German aristocrat. But the memory of Niels Ebbesen didn't die with him, and he became a national hero in Denmark. In the 19th century, at the height of romantic national myth-making, he was honoured with several memorials, and in 1942, during the German occupation of Denmark, Danish playwright Kai Munch wrote a play about Niels Ebbesen, this shining beacon of national resistance against German occupation. Unsurprisingly, the Nazi authorities weren't overly pleased. They banned the play and had Kai Munch murdered. But that's the topic for another episode sometime in the distant future. For the time being, let's return to the Danes fighting off German control in the mid-14th century. Just because King Valdemar accepted that the German nobles had gained control over these large swaths of Denmark by legal means, that didn't mean he was happy about the situation or that he didn't plan to roll back German control over Denmark. When he was proclaimed king in Viborg in June 1340, the Danish nobles hadn't insisted on Valdemar signing any ascension promissory, limiting royal power. Maybe they were just so happy to finally have a Danish king again, or maybe they didn't think this particular Danish king would ever grow powerful enough to threaten their interests and influence. Either way, Valdemar was unfettered by any charter, and he was intent on making the most of his powers. To begin with, King Valdemar made an arrangement with the Duke of Schleswig, where the king would marry the duke's sister, Helvig. That way, he joined the two warring dynasties together, but in addition, Helvig also brought a big chunk of Denmark with her, since her dowry consisted of the previously pawned-off region of northern Jutland, expanding royal lands considerably. But Valdemar was just getting started. He realized that if he ever wanted to be a king worth his salt, he'd have to reclaim Danish territory. But unlike Niels Ebbesen, Valdemar wasn't going to do it by force. He could see that he wasn't strong enough for that, and he didn't have the resources to pay for a foreign army of hired swords that would be big enough to challenge the German mortgage holders. And besides, paying for German mercenaries had been one of the contributing factors behind the need to pawn off pieces of Denmark to begin with. So instead, Valdemar decided to play the long game and to buy back his kingdom, bit by bit. So he taxed the parts of Denmark that were already under his control, and used the surplus of those taxes to pay off the mortgage on more land, which he could then in turn tax to pay off the next mortgage, taking control over even more land. That way, he regained all of northern Jutland, then northern Frisia, today the northwesternmost corner of Germany, and finally southern Jutland in the mid-1360s. When all of Jutland was in his hands, 
King Valdemar set his sights on the island of Zealand. The Bishop of Roskilde owned Copenhagen, and he granted the castle and the town to the king so that he'd have a base from which to collect tolls on shipping through the Ersen Strait, dividing Zealand and Scania. That way, Valdemar became the first Danish king to rule the country from Copenhagen. And then he set off to Estonia. Remember, Estonia was still a part of Denmark at the time, ever since the conquest by Valdemar the Victorious back in episode 40, V for Valdemar. But Estonia had never really sat comfortably under the Danish umbrella. Few Danes had ever settled there, and the Estonians themselves had proven to be a rebellious people, not particularly keen on being ruled by Danes. So now, King Valdemar decided that it was time to cut his losses. In 1346, he sold the Duchy of Estonia to the Teutonic Knights for 19,000 marks, and then he used that money to pay off even more mortgages back home. A brilliant solution for everyone, with the possible exception of Valdemar's brother Otto. You see, when Valdemar became king back in 1340, he had his older brother released from prison, but since he was older than Valdemar and therefore had a better claim to the throne than him, Otto had to officially surrender all his claims to the Danish throne. In exchange, beyond the fact that he got out of prison, Valdemar also created his brother Duke of Estonia, a title he now rendered void of content and income by selling off the duchy. You'd think this move would provoke Otto into open rebellion against his younger brother, who had robbed him of his crown and his duchy. But you'd be wrong. Otto chose to make lemonade out of the lemon's life and his brother had handed him, and instead joined the Teutonic Order, remaining in Estonia. After the sale of Otto's duchy had been settled, the previously laser-focused King Valdemar allowed himself to be sidetracked by some religious business. First, he got it in his head to go on a crusade against the Lithuanians, and he spent some time in 1346 trying to drum up support for such a mission among various princes in northern Germany. When nothing came of it, King Valdemar decided to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem instead, where he was well received and made a knight of the Holy Sepulchre. The Christian authorities in Jerusalem may have been happy to see him, but the Pope wasn't best pleased with his visit to the Holy Land since he had gone without papal permission. Anyway, Valdemar patched things up with the Pope and even managed to secure a permission to appoint Danish bishops, in exchange for the church in Denmark paying taxes directly to the Vatican. But when Valdemar returned to Denmark, he gathered an army to finish the rollback of German control over Danish lands. It's true that the strategy of buying back the kingdom may have been prudent, but it had its limits, and King Valdemar had eventually run into those limits in the shape of growing numbers of disgruntled peasants who weren't too pleased with the ever-increasing tax burden they had to put up with in order for the king to expand his personal land holdings. So when the funds were running low and he couldn't squeeze any more money out of the peasantry without risking open rebellion, King Valdemar did revert to violence. He was flexible that way. This flexibility was successful and it increased Valdemar's control over Danish lands even further. That was a reason to celebrate for King Valdemar, for sure, but for the Danish population as a whole, it wasn't necessarily such a good thing. By now, Valdemar had developed a reputation for being ruthless, and those who opposed him soon learned that this rumor wasn't just idle talk. The king didn't think twice about crushing those who stood in his way or who didn't do as he commanded. 
This included the peasants, who were suffering under an increasingly heavy tax burden, but who anyway did what they could to pay their taxes in full so they wouldn't incur the king's wrath. As his incomes grew, Valdemar expanded his army and set his sights on taking Scania back from Sweden. It was the last bit of the Danish territory still under foreign control, and it wasn't just any small piece of land either. Almost all of Scania was rich farmland, representing about one-fifth of Denmark's total area. But just as he was poised to take the fight across the Ersund Strait, disaster struck. In the year 1349, the Black Death reached Scandinavia. It had been a long time coming, spreading from Constantinople westward over the Mediterranean Sea, and then north through France and Germany. We're not going to get into too much details about the plague today, because I hope to dedicate an entire episode to this cheerful topic later this year. But for the sake of this episode, we need to note the following. As soon as the plague reached Denmark, it spread like wildfire, killing tens of thousands of people. It would take two years for the pandemic to ebb out, and by the time it did, Denmark was a changed, devastated country. Some villages and towns were completely abandoned because every single inhabitant was dead or had left. Medieval demographic figures are notoriously unreliable, so no one really knows for sure how many people perished. The estimates vary greatly from one-third to two-thirds of the entire population dying of the plague. But even if you choose to believe the more conservative estimate, one-third of the population is still a cataclysmic event. I know it's a cliché, but for the people living through the whole ordeal, it must have felt like the world was about to end. And even if it didn't end, it wasn't the same afterwards. King Valdemar survived the plague, and like some annoying life-affirming self-help meme on social media, he decided to see this crisis as an opportunity. When his enemies and opponents, real and or imagined, died like flies, he scooped up their lands, expanding his personal landholdings. At the same time, he continued to tax the peasantry as if there was nothing particularly noteworthy going on, even though the crown's incomes did shrink since less land was cultivated due to the fact that at least a third of Valdemar's subjects had died. To compensate for the diminishing revenue stream, Valdemar even increased the taxes on the nobility, something that his predecessors hadn't been allowed to do. This policy of land acquisition and higher taxes to compensate for so many taxpayers dying wasn't particularly popular among the Danes. As a result, the early 1350s saw a number of rebellions, and so in 1354, Valdemar was forced to convene the Danehof, or the Danish court. That's what the national-level thing had developed into in Denmark in the Middle Ages, and the great and the good of the country attended. At that meeting, the king and the nobility hammered out an agreement stating that the various noblemen would have to stop instigating rebellions against the king, but in exchange, Valdemar agreed to curtail some of his power somewhat. According to the terms of the agreement between the king and the nobility, Valdemar would have to convene the Danehof every single year from now on, on St. John's Day, June 24th, and everyone's rights and privileges were reverted to what they had been before Christopher II's Ascension Promissory, where he'd had to agree to severely limit royal powers. The Danish nobles, 
left the assembly feeling pretty good about themselves and what they had achieved. But if they thought King Valdemar would accept these kinds of restrictions in the long run, then they didn't know who they were dealing with. Valdemar ignored the agreement, with a predictable result that rebellions flared up again. But even though the king did manage to quash further uprisings and had rebellious nobles killed, he eventually realized that he had to make a deal with the aristocracy and stick to it. So in 1360, the so-called King's Peace was signed. It was an agreement between the crown, the church and the nobility, aiming at securing domestic peace in Denmark. The reason King Valdemar was so keen on a domestic peace was that he was finally getting ready for some wars abroad again. It was high time to tackle the Swedes and recapture Scania, just as he'd planned to do before he was distracted by the plague. As luck would have it, the King of Sweden was in a bit of a bind at the moment, because one of his sons had rebelled against him, and had taken control over Scania. King Valdemar, once again recognizing an opportunity, told the King of Sweden that he'd be happy to help him deal with this rebellion, and that he'd invade Scania, hopefully overwhelming the military capacity of the rebellious prince. The King of Sweden agreed gratefully, since he hadn't been able to put an end to the uprising on his own. So when Valdemar and the Danish army crossed the Ersund Strait, they weren't met by any resistance. But Valdemar had double-crossed his Swedish counterpart. When he was in control of Scania, he kept it. And just like that, the rich region had been reincorporated into the Danish kingdom once more. King Valdemar had now regained control over all of Denmark. It's thanks to this achievement that he'd been given the nickname Valdemar Atterdag, or Valdemar Dawn because under his reign, Denmark emerged from the long dark night of foreign rule. Still, Valdemar wasn't ready to call it a day just yet. He wanted more, and he planned to expand Danish rule further into the Baltic Sea. He had his eyes set on the Swedish island of Gotland, and especially its major city, Visby. Visby was a bustling hub in the Baltic Sea trade, and thanks to its ideal location, the city had grown rich, not least thanks to its membership in the Hanseatic League, a wealthy and powerful association of trading cities in Northern Europe, primarily in the Baltic Sea. In the summer of 1361, King Valdemar loaded his army onto ships and set sail for Gotland. The Danish forces landed on the western coast of the island and started to advance northward. The locals tried to stop the Danes by destroying a bridge across a stream on July 24th. The stream itself wasn't particularly impressive, but the banks were steep and the Danish soldiers wore heavy armor, so the Danish army was forced to halt. But it was merely a delay. They soon found another place to ford the stream, and the following day they crossed at Fjelle Mire. The defenders had hoped that the ground at the mire would have been too wet and soft for the army to traverse, but the summer had been hot and dry, and Valdemar's forces could advance on the town of Mesteby. There, the invaders and the defenders met in a first battle on July 25th, 1361. It didn't end well for the Gotlanders. The Danish army triumphed, and more or less massacred 1,500 defenders, many of whom were just local farmers who would have answered the call to defend their island. Survivors from the Battle of Mesteby fled northwards towards Visby, the island's main city. King Valdemar and his army weren't far behind, advancing on the rich merchant city. It's worthwhile to note that since Visby was a member of the Hanseatic League, it enjoyed another legal status than the rest of the island, 
and some of the inhabitants of the city, many of whom weren't local to Gotland, saw themselves as separate from the peasant population beyond the city walls, creating a certain level of tension between the city dwellers and the countryside population. It took Valdemar and his army two days to advance from Mesterby to Visby, but on July 27th, the Danish army could be seen in the distance by the sentries on Visby's eastern wall. I keep referring to the Danish army, but many of the soldiers under King Valdemar's command were German mercenaries and not Danes. These soldiers were battle-hardened veterans from Valdemar's many campaigns, and they were equipped with the best armor and weaponry that money could buy. Against them, gathered beneath the city wall, stood the Gotlander Defense Force. Most of them weren't professional soldiers at all, but merely local freeholding farmers and members of the local gentry and nobility with little or no military training. Among the defenders were also found men too old and boys too young to be considered suitable for military service. All in all, there were some 2,000 defenders, and as the battle was about to begin, they formed a 300-meter-long line, five to six men deep. The invaders started their attack with a volley of arrows that culled the Gotlanders' line. Then they advanced, chopping and stabbing with swords and axes. The battle was short and ended pretty much in the same way as the Battle of Mesterby had. Modern-day archaeologists have found the remains of almost 2,000 defenders, many with cuts in their arms and legs or crushed skulls. The archaeologists have been able to connect only very few remains to the Danish side, indicating that the battle at the walls of Visby was just as one-sided as it was brutal. The city of Visby had remained neutral during the battle, and its population hadn't lent any assistance to the Gotlander defenders. They'd merely stood on the walls, watching in horror as Valdemar's soldiers slaughtered their opponents. Now, when the fighting was over, the burghers of Visby opened the city gates without any resistance, welcoming King Valdemar to enter, hoping that this would spare them from sharing their neighbor's fate. According to tradition, when Valdemar's forces had taken control over the city, the king ordered three enormous beer barrels to be placed on the city main square. He then let it be known that if the barrels weren't filled with gold and silver within three days, he'd let his soldiers plunder and burn the city. The message was received loud and clear. The people of Visby knew that the king wasn't joking, and the barrels were brimming with gold and silver already before nightfall on the first day. Maybe King Valdemar was annoyed that he clearly had set too low a price for leaving Visby intact, considering how quickly the burghers had been able to meet his demands. Because even though he, the barrels had been filled, the Danish forces were let loose to plunder churches and monasteries, carrying off even more riches. Valdemar then loaded the loot onto his ships, appointed sheriffs to govern the city, and returned to Denmark again, no doubt very happy with his exploits. And it's true that his army had crushed the local defense with very few casualties of their own, and they had brought back plenty of loot from the rich city of Visby, which had yielded to his power without a fight. But not everybody shared his enthusiasm. As I mentioned a moment ago, Visby was a member of the Hanseatic League and had been since the 13th century. The other cities of the powerful trading alliance did not approve of Valdemar's high-handed behavior on Gotland. At some other time, we'll delve a little deeper into the Hanseatic League, 
because they played an important part in the Scandinavian economy, politics and urban development in the Middle Ages. But today, I limit myself to pointing out that the Hanseatic League was both rich and powerful, and it could be dangerous to awaken its wrath, even if you were the King of Denmark. It would not be an overstatement to say that the Hanseatic League lacked enthusiasm for the Danish conquest of Visby and the extortion of its inhabitants. The Hanseatic League wasn't just annoyed by the Danish actions on Gotland. The League also worried that a Denmark that would be allowed to grow too strong would dominate the Baltic Sea and therefore threaten the League's long-term economic interests, not least by limiting its access to the extremely lucrative herring trade in the Öresund Strait. So the powerful German trade alliance now saw its interests align with those of Sweden, and the League joined the Swedes in order to fight Denmark. By the way, this is a pattern we'll see repeat itself, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries, when other European powers with vested trading interests in the Baltic Sea, most notably the English and the Dutch, will switch alliances back and forth between Denmark and Sweden in order to keep some kind of Scandinavian power balance, making sure that neither the Danes nor the Swedes could grow strong enough to unilaterally dictate terms for the trade in the Baltic Sea. So the Hanseatic League sent a fleet northward to the Ersund Strait, threatening Zealand and Scania. They had backup from the principalities of Holstein and Mecklenburg, whose leading families had lost out during Valdemar's aggressive policy of regaining control over Denmark. The Germans managed to capture Copenhagen, and the city was pillaged before the Hanseatic troops continued to harry the locals up and down the shores of the Øresund. At the same time, the Swedes invaded Scania once again. The Wheel of Fortune had turned really quickly. Not long ago, Valdemar had been on top of the world, capturing Gotland and looking invincible. Now, he was desperately trying to fight off a foreign invasion of the very heart of Denmark itself. And it wasn't going particularly well. To make matters worse, the newly conquered Gotland even rebelled and slipped out of Danish hands, at least temporarily. The fighting continued throughout the 1360s, and things just went from bad to worse. The Danes couldn't seem to catch a break, and in 1368, disaster struck when Valdemar's only son and heir, Christopher, fell in battle. Valdemar himself was forced to flee Denmark and went into exile at the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. But just because he had been forced out of his kingdom, that didn't mean that Valdemar had given up. He couldn't win against a united front of enemies, Fine, so he'd just have to divide them. And that's what he did. In 1370, he agreed to a separate peace with the Hanseatic League. The agreement granted the League free trade and fishing rights in the Ersund Strait and nominal rule over all of Scania for 15 years, including two-thirds of the revenue from the extremely lucrative herring market there. There's no doubt that this was an agreement that tilted heavily in favour of the Hanseatic League, but it was, in fact, quite good for Valdemar as well. First of all, it meant that the League and their fleet were out of the war, and even switched sides from Sweden back to Denmark. Secondly, this deal effectively blocked Swedish attempts to taking Skåne, since it was now under the control of the Hanseatic League. As a bonus, the League also recognized Danish control over Gotland and Visby. There was one clause in the peace agreement that must have stung though, and which had the potential to weaken Denmark long-term. 
Since Valdemar's son, Christopher, had died and there was no obvious heir to the Danish crown, Valdemar had to agree to give the Hanseatic League influence over who would succeed him after his death. And even though Valdemar himself might have thought he'd live forever, that was not to be. In fact, he wasn't long for this world. During the war against all his foreign enemies, some Jutland nobles had started a rebellion as well. They thought that Valdemar wasn't living up to the agreement he had signed with them back in 1354, and so they took the opportunity to strike while the king was occupied with this invasion. Perhaps not a very noble strategy, but definitely their best chance of winning against Valdemar. But now, the war against the Hanseatic League was over, and the king could focus his attention on the rebellious nobles. He spent the early years of the 1370s gradually taking back control over Jutland. In the middle of all this, he fell ill and had to return to Zealand to recuperate. He never did recover from his illness though, and on October 24, 1375, Valdemar Dawn, King of Denmark, passed away. When he died, Valdemar had been king for 35 years. When he became king, way back in 1340, there was hardly even a kingdom to be king over. Almost all of the land had been controlled by various German aristocrats. But when he died, he left a reunited and reinvigorated Denmark. From that perspective, his nickname Valdemar Don is well deserved. But that achievement had come at a high price, a price paid by the Danish people, both in taxes and in blood. Valdemar had squeezed as much money as possibly out of this peasantry, and sometimes a little more. The Danish aristocracy had also seen its privileges and rights trampled by the king who cared nothing for tradition if it stood in the way of his plans. This tendency to ride roughshod over both peasants and noblemen had led to insurrections on numerous occasions and had almost cost Valdemar the crown at least once when he'd been forced to go into temporary exile. More importantly, it had cost the life of Valdemar's son, Christopher, who had fallen in battle fighting rebellious noblemen back in 1363. And this was a serious problem. The fact that there was no obvious heir went waiting in the wings, ready to take over after Valdemar Dawn, threatened to plunge Denmark right back into the night of civil war. There were two pretenders to the throne, two grandsons born by Valdemar's daughters, Ingeborg and Margaret. Ingeborg, the eldest daughter, had married the Duke of Mecklenburg, and they had a son called Albrecht, or Albert in English. The second pretender was called Olav, and he was the son of Valdemar's younger daughter, Margaret, who had married the King of Norway. Albrecht's claim was supported by the various German principalities and the Hanseatic League, who hoped that a German on the Danish throne may be more attentive to their point of view than Valdemar had been. The Swedes also wanted Albrecht to succeed Valdemar, or rather, they didn't want Olav on the Danish throne, since that could potentially lead to a united Danish-Norwegian state, since he stood to inherit the Norwegian crown as well. And the Swedes feared that their own kingdom would end up dwarfed and bullied by such a Scandinavian superstate. We'll end today's episode with that almost 650-year-old cliffhanger. We will get back to it in the future episode, I promise but not next time, because next time we need to return to Sweden and see what they've been up to since they conquered Finland. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, 
why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.